0: Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian
1: Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and today we have an interview that Dr. Norman Horn, LCI's founder, did on the Our Foundations podcast with Joshua Longbrook. So, this actually is going to be in two parts, and the interview was about the historic church in the modern state. And we hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome to Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and with me today is Norman Horn for another interview related to these topics we're covering in season two. So this time, what I wanna cover is things related to this comparison of the historic church and the modern state. The historic church is what grounded society during that time period around the Reformation, and the modern state is really what grounds society today in our age. And so Norman Horn is a very good person for this, I believe, because (laughs) he definitely covers both um, theology and the religious aspect of this, the Christian side of things, as well as the state and political theory, more on the libertarian side. So if you would, would you go ahead and tell us basically who you are, what the Libertarian Christian Institute is, and what you talk about on your show
0: as well? Sure, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. Uh, first of all, this is uh, its definitely an honor to be here and to to discuss these very important topics with you. Uh, as you as you requested, a little bit about myself. I'll kind of give you the background about wh- what we're all about. Um, a number of years ago, I started a little website called libertarianchristians.com, Kind of in the uh, wake of the election of President Obama uh, at, at the end of two thousand eight, and uh, it grew very quickly because it was a Frankly, I think I feel it was kind of a needed voice in the libertarian community at the time and, and still continues to be. Over the years, it got a lot of support. And eventually it became evident that we needed to kind of codify what the what the site could be in a in an even greater fashion. And so we formed it into a a nonprofit, uh, which now has a, a number of volunteers and people that are associated with it, as well as a number of wonderful donors who help support the work which is uh, very, very simply to equip the church to promote a free society. Uh, We believe that libertarianism is the most consistent expression of Christian political thought. And so we try to, you know, teach that to everybody that we can, in particular people within the church, but also even to libertarians out there who may not necessarily be believers. Uh, We hope to, you know, both honor God in this way and to make the world better by, by, by teaching people solid theology about what it means to interact in a world where violence is endemic to the way things run. And so we offer an alternative. We want to show people a a different way of thinking about being neighborly amongst people that they may not even know, and, and in particular to reduce the power of the state in those interactions.
1: Yeah, yeah, that definitely sounds like a very good combination. Makes a lot of sense. So... My podcast in particular is not necessarily religious at all, although I have covered, obviously, with this parallel I'm doing between the historic church and the modern state, there is religion involved. Absolutely. And I've talked about, yeah, I've talked about theology from both points of view, the Catholic side and the reformer side. And um, most of what I cover is related more to history and government corruption and economics and all kinds of stuff, political theory. But so for the listeners here that probably are not as familiar with why people feel so strongly about the Christian religion. Um, I think a lot of people, when they look back at this time period of the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, and the Reformation, and even into the Enlightenment, that it kind of seems like these people might have been either a little backwards— or maybe that religion was just culturally ingrained into them and their society. They were told that God exists, and this is who God is, and this is what you do, period. So they did it. And to a degree, this did play out some once people were able to get the Bible written in their own language. There were people that read it and decided, hey, you know, this isn't really what I believe. I don't agree with some of this stuff. And some people did have objections there. But a lot of people didn't, and we had a lot of philosophers as well as theologians that came out and gave some very intellectual arguments for why they believed in a God and why they believed that God was the Christian God. So could you lay out just a little bit for us on more of a logical
0: perspective on why people would buy into this whole religion thing? Well, certainly, there's there's a lot of, of things to unpack there. Um, certainly there are,, you know, as you mentioned, logical reasons to believe, and as well as just cultural ones. You mentioned that, you know, whether it's we're considering now or we're considering the past, uh, a lot of religion is culturally ingrained, and that's the way they initially come to know it. Often, logical reasons become incorporated into that over time as they begin to work out what they believe. But there's, there's a little bit of all of it in there. Why might one have a reason to believe? Well, there's there's certainly many ways to conceive of reasons why you should believe in God. Um, whether those are, you could say, like a moral argument, like how do we know that anything is good at all uh, from a naturalist perspective? That doesn't really make any sense. If you assume that uh, everything is, is unguided uh, from natural causes, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be able to say why something is good or bad. Those words don't really have any meaning as it pertains to you know, just the way things work out in that respect. So the fact that we have these types of moral instincts, these types of moral intuitions about what is good and what is evil, and we, and we are very passionate about those things, uh, whether or not you believe in God initially, you still have those intuitions. Uh, and, and that is in, in part an evidence for why, well, perhaps that came from someone who is ultimately the arbiter of what is good. Uh, and that's, that that argument is is very much in line with uh an author that many people know which is uh cs lewis's moral argument uh but yeah but there are others as well Argu- arguments from design arguments from you might call it the first cause argument that you know that yeah. uh, an infinite regression of causes uh ultimately must lead to a first cause and that must be then a, a supreme being that being god
1: okay many
0: many times you'll see this you know outlined in uh in even medieval philosophy, and we we get a lot of that handed down from there. But I think it's important to realize as well that you know when it comes down to like say the way in which uh, the early Christians believed that that wasn't really like the compelling thing that people didn't start off by going like all right I'm gonna I'm gonna work out here what are my logical reasons for believing and then I'm gonna figure out which religion is best or something like something like that you know. In fact, even now if I came up with 20 different arguments logically for why one should believe, ultimately, that may not really cause somebody to believe. Whereas in fact, you know, the way we come to know God even is rather different. I mean, for instance, I don't know, Josh, are you married? I am. Oh, you are. So if I asked you, for instance, prove to me that your wife loves you, you would have kind of a difficult time (laughs) doing that even though you are 100% convinced that she does. Pretty sure. (laughs) Right? I mean, yeah. (laughs) So it's not entirely unlike that. Uh, The way that we come to know or or our way of knowing, in this case, um, this supreme being, that is God, is not one of purely evidentiary knowledge. It's rather one that comes from a a personal knowledge, uh, and so this is actually a, a crucial reason. Uh, for instance, why why Jesus as God being on Earth as one of us is so crucial to the Christian faith, and that's why we talk about even you know maybe some of your your Christian you know listeners will probably know this phrase. Some who are not Christian may not have heard this, but or maybe they have. I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, for instance. What does that mean? How do you have this? How does that work at all when it's somebody you haven't physically met in the same location or something like that? Well, that's kind of the point, though, uh, is that this way of knowing res- is not one that is just well. I have X axioms leading in premises that lead to a number of of uh, Y Y plus Z you know, uh, uh, additional statements that now leads me to con- you know, conclusion a, now I believe in God. Like it doesn't work like that. And so when people yeah. say like, well, you know, I, uh, what encouragement would you give to somebody who's, who's kind of thinking about this and wondering, I'd say like, well, just come walk with me for a while, man. Let's experience life together. And, and, uh, and you'll be able to see, uh, an experience the way that God acts in, in and around us. And so that, that, that transcends logic, yeah. if you will. It doesn't mean there are no logical reasons, but it's more than that.
1: <laughs> that would make sense. Well, hopefully well, it makes more than Ideally, <laughs> Christians would... <laughs> yes, yes, hopefully so. <laughs> um, yeah, and ideally, Christians would do exactly as you say. If you were to walk with any Christian, you would see how they are living out these principles and the things that are taught in the Bible and moral uh, good as far as a moral perspective is concerned they're living out ethically what they believe but unfortunately right. that's not always what we see and uh one of the prime examples here that I'm covering in season 2 is this parallel between the historic church around the time of the reformation and the modern state we see in both of those that ideally they should be very good things for society. Ideally, the church should be upholding these types of values that you just mentioned. They should be taking care of the poor and feeding the hungry and helping maintain morality within society and all these kinds of things. Just like today, the state should be helping (laughs) the poor and maintaining morality and all very similar types of things. But we see in reality, that's not really how it plays out. Um, so, uh, along with that and maybe some positives, if you can come up with some, what are some of the similarities that you see
0: between the historic church and the modern wow, state there's, today? There's some, there's some really interesting things to tease out from there, but I think the best way to start with that is to really go back to the early Christians, those people who were the, the earliest followers of Jesus, uh, in the first century. And it's notable there that, In no way, shape, or form did these people have political power. And that constitutes the biggest difference, I think, between the historic church and the modern state, is that on the one hand, the people of Jesus, the followers of the way, those early Christians, uh, were committed to being servants in a way that did not require them to exert force upon anyone. To accomplish what their goals were, which were to honor God and to and to ultimately better themselves, even as a result of being more human through the through the saving uh, act of of Jesus Christ. Uh, so they believed that you know, in, in for lack of better words, that the way in which they previously were was not was not full and complete. Uh, that they were they were incomplete people without Jesus. And that Jesus's gospel, that way of life, uh, changed who they were and made them uh, completely different people. And so that's kind of important to recognize. Now, the difference there between that and the state, obviously, is that the state, while purporting to have certain desires that would conform to some of the other desires of, say, the early Christians, uh, what's required uh, for them to do that? Well, they are required in the modern state. They have to have an apparatus of force available to, to them to accomplish any of their goals. It doesn't operate in any other way. And so, unfortunately, over time, that attitude amongst the early Christians, uh, perhaps we would say, you know, degraded. And it, it kind of begins with the uh, with the uh, rise of Emperor Constantine in the, in the Roman Empire, of course, uh, where by making Christianity not only legal, you know, keep in mind that, you know, prior to, prior to, uh, Constantine, at least, you know, going back of uh, generations there, you know, Christianity was illegal, even though it was growing by leaps and bounds. You could be, obviously you could be killed for proclaiming a belief in Jesus. Um, because Jesus said, you know, he, he, Jesus claimed to be Lord that Caesar was not, and that ran up against the political power of their time. It was a threat in many respects to them, at least they believed it was, even though realistically they were, not, they were never rebels. They were not uh, usurpers per se. They just proclaimed a different way of life, <laughs> which that's a threat to them. So Constantine, though, legalizing Christianity and, uh, and also basically making it the official religion of the Roman Empire kind of began a, a turning point. And that's not to say there weren't any good results of that. I mean, it was still... Important as a uh, as a you know just a fact of history uh, that things began to change even at that point you know in in good ways too but one of the negative aspects was that the tie between you know throne and altar uh, began began to grow and to the point at which you know down the line you have the Holy Roman Empire and (laughs) and the 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 very political nature of the of the Roman Catholic Church for some time and much of that was was not good uh but you know that so you see this growing influence of the state upon the church at that point and it became this very incestuous type of relationship very problematic the reformation then of course began to you know reverse some of those trends although it wasn't perfect either there were plenty of there were plenty of reformers who just wanted to well perhaps they had good motives in some ways and not realizing that it, some of their motives in other places were were poor um but you still saw the use of force and the, and the use of essentially state religion, uh, the state be trying to you know, take upon itself the trappings of Christianity in various ways and coming up with theological justifications for their existences and so on and so forth. And it's really only been in the last few hundred years that that is truly getting repudiated uh, by the bulk of Christians in one way or another. And I think it's you know kind of apropos to kind of point out here that those who take upon themselves the idea of uh, shall I say Christian libertarian ideas are kind of I think a culmination of that in many respects that we're finally saying that not only you know should we're reclaiming I should say the the early Christian attitude toward the state that there is an antipathy there that the kingdom of God is not the kingdom of the world and the state is not the kingdom of God that's it. And, uh, and so that's, I think that, you know, where there are these similarities that you'll see uh, and, and little convergence points where, the, where the, the states of the nation states that developed in, from Constantine onward, uh, you know, have the trappings of Christianity in certain respects. And, and even the modern state, you know, wants to have certain goals that would might conform in some ways to Christian goals at times, uh, that they're very different things, of course. And in fact, I, I'd, I'd venture to argue that the modern state is really wants to take upon itself essentially godlike qualities. And in fact, i'd I'd even further argue that in many respects, The modern state claims more power than God on some level because it wants – like, I mean, the modern state says (laughs) we can birth you and feed you and provide you a job and educate you and protect you and make sure that we – I mean, heck, they. I mean, the the modern state, the United States and the EU think that they can control climate if they just regulate enough. Like, that's, that's incredible. Like, I mean, of all things that God claims to have power over, it might be the weather. I mean <laughs> I mean and so and it's so, true <laughs> and so it's just kind of ironic on some level that that uh the state just takes upon itself per, it's per into its purview so many different aspects of life and the universe it's just crazy uh when they when they try to do that so yeah hopefully that kind of is a yeah. long-winded way of getting to what you're going for though <laughs>
1: No, yeah, yeah. And there's a few things I want to pull out there that, that I thought of as you were talking about that stuff. So you talked about how the original church, the very early church, was not a political entity and how they kind of had this more, what we would think of as an idealist kind of perspective where you should well, actually me, love your neighbor, your friend, and your let enemy. Let me interrupt
0: you just for a second, just to be clear. I don't, I, I, if I said it's not a political entity, I probably should have been a little more clear. because the implications of the gospel do have political implications. Like there are political implications to the gospel, Um, but it was not a political entity in the sense of create like a modern state as a political entity. I guess that does that make better sense then? Yeah. 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 And that
1: still actually fits even better. So um, when you have that and you have this, Um, kind of idealized version of how you're supposed to live and how these early Christians did live, and they fully believed it. It's not just that we idealized that and that's not how it really was. It seems historically that that's exactly how the early church was, and that was a very good thing. And we see the same, especially in America, when you look at the birth of our current nation-state, we have the Declaration of Independence, and the Founding Fathers, and that is something that is also very idealized in people today. And a lot of what uh, I would say the Declaration of Independence Founding Fathers believed were fairly in line with libertarian ideals and with freedom and liberty. And they were, I think, from a Christian perspective, fairly moral. They were a political entity, but they didn't necessarily want to act as an overbearing, forceful political entity. They more wanted to be a political body that would keep people from being interfered with by politics, in a sense. And so they didn't have, uh, at least the original plan, was not to have a standing army, not to have forced taxation. Um, all the different regions had full autonomy in most every way. And so that that ends up being very different than what we see today, just like the early Christians are definitely very different than what we see out of the uh, Catholic Church in the 1500s, for example And so there are definitely some parallels here. You mentioned this this combination of a relationship between throne and altar and how the church and the state basically combined and how that added to the corruption. And it was kind of this this infusion, this unholy infusion. And uh, the comparison that I make in season two of this show is that the nobility of the past would be Um, it would have some comparisons to the corporate world of today, to corporations. And we also see this unholy mixture of the corporate world and the state today. We have crony capitalism that is the Economic or rule of the land, so to say. And that is how things run in today's society. And it, it definitely, there are definitely some um, similarities in how these things play out in their histories, how it starts off more idealized, how it becomes corrupted, how other aspects and entities come and get molded into this structure. And it basically becomes unrecognizable from what it was originally. And then often you have some either Reformation or Revolution moments that happen in history, and that is a common trend that we do see. So uh, those are things that stood out to me as well as you mentioned that the modern state is similar to the role that God should play for the Christian. And I was thinking of things like, well, you you do sing songs to worship God (laughs) and worship the state. You do pledge your allegiance to God or to the state. Um, you do look to the state to take care of all of your needs in society, just like you would look to God to take care of all of your needs as a Christian. And yeah, it just goes on and on that, that is the modern state is the modern version of God. If you follow uh, Nietzsche, for example, God is dead. And, um, according to his philosophy, that was not necessarily a good thing. He felt like God was dead and he was Seeing that that society that we killed him, that through these movements and intellectual movements that have happened, a lot of society doesn't believe in God anymore, and at least what many people would say is that Nietzsche's view was that something should replace that, that that's not a good thing, that we lost our our sense of morality, our sense of ethic, our purpose. And he felt like something should step in and fill that. We need to find something. And his view was to find that from an intellectual perspective instead of a religious perspective. But he felt like something should fill that gap. And we end up with something that did fill that gap, but it, it's not very idealistic at all. We end up with a corrupt modern state. And so, yeah, that that's kind of the way it is, which is not very good, but that's what we have. And so with that... I do want to get into a little more about how people interacted between the holy book that they read, the Bible, the scriptures, and how that related to politics. Because we're talking about these two things, about theology and political theory and how those intertwined. And in addition to these broad parallels between the institutions and these shifts that happened historically and that are happening today— there is also a direct pairing between theology and political philosophy. And that's something that you, it seems, definitely have a lot of expertise in. That's something that you cover a lot on your show is this relationship between theology and the state. And so one of the big things that I see in the Reformation is that you had, uh, let's say Luther as the main stereotype. He looked at scriptures and found that some of the theology there, some of the things that are written there, don't really correspond with what the church was actually doing, and he felt like it needed to be reformed, hence the Reformation. And from there, you have many different people that are looking at the exact same book, the exact same set of scriptures, and coming to Many different conclusions that it's either a divine right of kings to rule over us all, or the Anabaptist view that basically there should be no state and you go off in a community by yourself, isolate yourself, and you're not under the authority of the state at all, and everywhere in between. But they're all looking at this same set of teachings to justify their views and fully believe these views. So, could you talk a little bit about how people interpret politics from scripture and kind of how this
0: plays out? Oh sure, well, and you kind of laid it out. You know the the entire spectrum you will find uh, throughout church history, and it's no surprise that people will you know come to different conclusions about the state from the Bible. I mean, considering that you know any given view from the Bible has some variations on uh, on itself. When different Christians come to the to the scripture to read it, we have a, a you know, a variety of beliefs that we consider normative are absolute dogmas for the faith, and we we don't compromise on that at all. And then there there are those things like a theology of the state, which uh, there's definitely more debatable points. And regardless of how, uh, regardless of what conclusions we come to there, we still have to you know accept our brethren and and recognize that you know even if even if my some of my some of my Brethren, or don't believe like I do in exactly this way. They're still my brothers and sisters in the faith, and I am not going to betray them and 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 try to declare them to be outside of the brotherhood uh, as a result of that. So I just want to make that clear up front. Now that being said, if I didn't think that this was the best way, or that my that my views in particular were the were the best way of interpreting scripture, I would change them. <laughs> There's that too. Yeah. But but there are there are a variety of views out there and um and some of them are wor- are definitely worse than others. You know, you have those that wanted to they they you call them call it the divine right of kings and which uh, kind of looks at the state as being ordained by God uh not not just as a as a matter of um this is part of God's will that this is like this is the way the way thing the way things are 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 not outside of the will of God, that all of this is within God's plan, but not not just merely saying that, but rather everything that the king does is justified because God set him up to do, you know, with that right to do whatever he wanted. So there's a big difference there if, in the way one thinks about it. And that's kind of the the epitome of that divine right of kings. Now that that the state can do whatever it wants because, well, You know, God told it to do whatever it wants, and everything it does, it wants to do is thus right. Well, and and the funny thing about that is that you know, even though we don't really have a divine right of kings view in the modern era anymore, because we don't really have uh, (laughs) much in the way of of legit kings and queens, even even in the modern monarchies, there often are parliaments and whatnot. Um, But nonetheless, uh, the belief that kind of well you know, God put it there so it can do whatever it wants and that's okay, is still actually somewhat prevalent. Um, it just, it, it's in a slightly different wording, if you will. And that comes in, you know, in various forms. I, you'll see things like, um, but you'll you'll see this, whether it's in, uh, in, in say, like Zimbabwe, uh, which where Robert Mugabe, uh, Mugabe, Mugabe? Yeah, Robert Mugabe uh, tried to, you know, basically justify whatever his, his government wanted to do on the basis that Romans 13 gave him the right to do it. Which has literally happened <laughs> um, or even or even Christians in America saying, well, it's totally fine that we're going after countries in the middle east and and doing regime changes and whatnot, because look, we're like this is the way God set it up to be. America's supposed to do this. Well, that's kind of like divine right of kings kind of rearing its ugly head, um and so I think that's kind of relevant here, but really the more the more important. I think thing for us to realize as Christians is that there is a better way of thinking about it. And that's that you know, realizing that the kingdom of God is not the state. Uh, and that you know that the that really are, um, you know, there is no special privilege of position that comes about because you happen to hold uh, a title, whether it's representative, king, queen, soldier, policeman, whatever. Uh, you're all held under the same moral standard. And if that's the case, what does that moral standard mean? You know, what what does it entail for all of us, you know, who are just trying to interact and make our way through this world together? Well, the impetus from Scripture and and from church tradition, broadly speaking, is that we, we're we not to initiate violence against each other, that the way we're supposed to interact is not via uh, the, the use of force constantly, but rather by the use of service by looking to serve one another in various ways. Now that's that's the answer that's the antithesis of the state but it, it is the complete convergence of the market uh, where in the marketplace where we trade goods and we try to we literally are trying to serve each other in the best way that we can. And if we're not then we're trying to steal from them. But what is that again? That's looking like the state because the state has to steal in order to operate. So in every way that I can see at least, the, the, those who are, would be considered, I would say, the statists among us, those who would try, try to kind of purport to maintain a, a, a modified divine right of kings believe that they have the right to initiate violence against others in order to accomplish uh, in, in their own ends. Whereas the true Christian way of thinking is one where we don't use violence to accomplish our ends, but rather we seek to serve each other. And it's the difference between the market and the state. And it's pretty pretty yeah. simple as that. Yeah, and I will I will question
1: your views on the market later. Um, I will first question your views on religion here. <laughs> sure. Uh, so, um, well, uh, first I do want to say that you mentioned how people did back up their view of the state and this right to rule out of scripture, and they believed that God ordained these rulers to rule over everybody, and they used that as a justification to do whatever they wanted. And I would say the modern parallel to that is that today, instead of theology ruling over just about every aspect of life in society, like it did in the time period of the Reformation the Middle Ages, today, politics rules over just about every aspect of society. And if we look back to the uh, scriptures, so to say, from our modern politics and our modern view of the state I would say that would be Enlightenment philosophy, to uh, get broad with it at least. And according to the Enlightenment philosophy, those ideals, um, the modern state should exist, it should rule, and it should uh, take care of all of these different aspects of society that it does. So we use our politics to justify the existence of the state, just like um, in this historic time they used their theology to justify the position of the state. And there are definitely some similarities there going on, and neither one really, I would argue, play out very well if you go too in-depth with them. But on service level, they sound good. So um, to question your religious point of view here and your interpretation of Scripture, Mm -hmm. the Bible does say—I have read this myself, I know it's (laughs) there— the Bible does clearly say that you should pay your taxes and obey authorities— and that God is sovereign over the political powers and put them in place for a reason. And, um, yeah, you've got Romans 13 that you mentioned there that talks about these types of things. However, at the same time, like you've pointed out, the state, is clearly not in line with the biblical teachings of, let's say, Jesus, where you are to serve others, you are to be sacrificial in how you deal with other people. If someone offends you, you are to turn the other cheek, not respond in violence or um, in the same manner that they uh, initiated that action upon you. And a lot of these things are the complete opposite of the state. You have the Beatitudes, I know, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, where you have, blessed are the meek, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, These are not adjectives I would use in describing the state. And so this seems like a contradiction between the Bible saying, on one hand, you are to live this way, and that's a very peaceful, nonviolent way where you're serving others. And then on the other hand, it says that you should give money to this uh, institution that claims a monopoly on force that lives out a complete opposite way. So can you uh,
0: help me out with this contradiction there? Absolutely. So first of all, I'll say everything I'm about to say is encapsulated in a... uh, in an article that I've written called New Testament Theology of the State you can find that on libertarianchristians.com. so I'm going to go from kind of reverse order of what you said so regarding ordination and God put the state in place and then that ordination is is uh, is justifies its rightness in a sense it's kind of what what you're perhaps what you're kind of suggesting is like is this is this a contradiction here and the answer to that is that that's not really the point of what Paul's saying there in that Chapter in particular, Paul is speaking to the Roman Christians, you know, Christians who are living in Rome at the time, where they're wondering what is my proper relationship under my newfound freedom in Christ that you've just been talking about, Paul, uh, given that I'm also living in Rome, that claims that, that its emperor claims that, it's a, that he is a God and that they have tremendous power over this geographical area to do, you know, pretty much whatever they want. Well, how should I interact with this? And Paul's basically offering a prudential argument for how one should interact. That is to say... Yeah, you probably don't want to just, you know, waltz up to the, you know, whenever, whenever the, the tax collector comes up and say, well, you know, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm not going to pay this tax. Ha ha! You know, checkmate, Roman tax collector. Um, because what that would constitute at that time would be, they would be considered rebels. They would be considered criminals in the eyes of, the, of that state. And what that would result in would be them getting killed. And that wouldn't do so much to keep expanding the kingdom of God at that time. Now, what's their primary mission? To expand the kingdom of God at that time. So what they realized, is, and this is Paul's encouragement, you know, with the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, as we believe, to tell the Roman Christians is that it is the better part of valor, it's the prudential thing to do, to realize that our kingdom uh, is not of this world, and that instead it's it's just appropriate to pay their to pay the taxes as they are. Uh, and that's and, and to just and to when asked to submit in this respect to just do so. Because it, it, the alternative is not so great. Now that's an interpretation and that's one that I think I've supported very well in my writings and you'll find other people beyond me who make the same type of argument and that so you I that might be my encouragement to your listeners to you know think deeply about that. Uh, and and go and go and kind of study that in more detail. It's not something that can just be explained in really in just a couple of minutes. I'm doing the best I can here, but there's a lot more to it that you can grab in, that you can get into. Uh, for instance, the, I think the the next thing that one would probably want to to elucidate at that point would be, you know, well, why that instead of something else, uh, and what other part of scripture you know kind of would lead you to this type of of belief. And I think the the key point here. Is probably goes back to Matthew chapter five, uh, where in the, in when Jesus was tempted by Satan, uh, that one of those temptations was basically Satan offering him the kingdom of the world if Jesus would just bow down and worship uh, Satan at that time. And that's interesting because the way in which Jesus responds is not like a, is not what you would expect if if the divine right of king's view, uh, or even the way that some people want to interpret Romans 13 were correct. uh, Because If what a lot of people say about the state would be true, then Jesus would have just laughed at Satan and said, well, gee, you know, those kingdoms, I set those up anyway. You know, God is, God's totally in control of that in the sense, in in every sense of the word, everything they do is right. And so you're telling me what to do here is just doesn't make any sense. It's like, I already got all that. It's already part of me or something to that effect. Right. But that's not what he says. Not at all. In fact, instead, Jesus recognizes that that political power is not appropriate for him. It's not appropriate for anybody. Uh, that's not the way of that's not the way of uh, of God, and instead rebukes him and, and of course uh, and says, you know, well, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm commanded, you know, worship the Lord and serve Him only. That's the response that we should even have toward uh, toward the veneration of the state. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, you know, we, <laughs> you see, you see in today's modern age the singing of almost hymns toward the state and de- declaring allegiance to it and so on and so forth. Whereas our response as Christians should be nope, no, we worship the Lord and serve him only.
1: Okay. Well, And that does fall in line, I guess, with the biblical teaching of loving your enemy and turning the other cheek, and you would just apply that. Yeah, we're applying that to the state, saying that the state is the enemy. And even though the Bible says to submit to the state and pay your taxes, that there are many reasons for this, and that it's a little bit of a deeper issue, and that the overriding principle is that... Even though the state may not necessarily be legitimate from an ideal aspect of what a godly society should look like, you are still to submit and you are still to love your enemy and you are still to play this role that you are supposed to play here on earth of service. And so, yes, I guess that does uh, fall in line fairly well. So, with these different views on politics, and obviously people interpret these things many different ways, and they get many different results. And that was one of the main roles of the church historically, pre-Reformation, definitely, over the universal church at the time. And that's what they did, is they helped interpret what Scripture means, and they would interpret something like Romans 13, where it says, submit to the state. And they would help the Christians of the day to better understand what this means, so that they wouldn't get um, as off track. As many people would believe that other denominations did in the future. And so I think that you would probably be more of a proponent of a decentralized structure coming from the more libertarian side of the political argument. Oh, for and sure. And so <laughs> definitely. Okay. And I, I don't believe that you're part of the Catholic Church. Would that be correct?
0: No, no, I am not. I am a Protestant.
1: Okay. So you are in line with the reformers and in line with the decentralized state. So you are perfect for that. So, um, well, I don't know we about can, perfect, but let's just, well, okay. I'll, run with it. I'll run you're, with you're, it, though. <laughs>
0: okay, okay.
1: Good enough, yeah, let's good say enough. that. <laughs> Hopefully better than <laughs> that. Um, the point is that we see that there is an obvious role of the church here that is an important role to play to help keep people In line um, as far as not going too far off the rails and to keep a structure around these things. And we see the same thing with the state today of keeping a structure over society, making sure that people don't overstep their bounds and run around in the streets and kill everybody. There needs to be a role there of somebody, something that is helping to guide things. And so we see this contradiction between having—we use the church example first—between having the institutional church that is the arbiter of truth and interprets Scripture and guides the church— Um, that is very different than having individual Christians read the Bible and be led to certain interpretations and believe what they are going to believe in these, you know, who knows how many thousand different denominations that exist today, um, very decentralized. So uh, could you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of having a centralized source, like the church or the state, that would be an arbiter of truth or an arbiter of rights, and the opposite view of having a decentralized version where people... Uh, make independent choices depending on how they view these
0: things. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there because <laughs> because there's you know there centralization is often just a big danger in, in a lot of different fields and and to an extent we have to even say that that theology is not uh, is one of those fields as well in which total centralization might actually be a uh, a bad thing it would be great if all Christians believe the same exact same thing on some level, I I think. And, and, and for what it's worth, you know, we do have what you might call, you know, the dogmas of the faith. Like you're not going to find a Christian uh, as such that, that doesn't believe in, you know, the, the person of Jesus and how he, and Jesus came to earth and died and was buried and was resurrected and now sits at the right hand of God. Like that, that is, is, is central to who we are, um, but then beyond that, as there, as we try to elucidate various things about you know why why is uh, why are things the way they are, uh, what what are what is one to believe about topic X? Uh, there's there's going to have to be some room for disagreement because otherwise you know like we'll, we'll just <laughs> if we don't have room for disagreement then we'll all be at each other's throats trying to trying to you know demand who gets to believe what. Um, so I think. You know, part of, of Christian liberty, if you will, as e- that's even explained, it's literally in Scripture. I mean, that 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 happens too. But you know, the the interesting thing is that I think that uh, you would you might we might want to say that when the state takes upon itself this central as the centralizing force and of arbitration of truth in general, uh, they're going to be super prone to error. I mean, Hayek, Friedrich Hayek explained this in, in the sense uh, the problem of the knowledge problem uh, that, you know, the reason that socialism fails, for instance, is because there is no way in which the state can set prices uh, logically. It's it, the pricing mechanism does not work if it is just being set from a centralized source because knowledge is not centralized. Knowledge is scattered. It is diffused in, uh, in a society. Uh, it is not something that is all located in one spot. And not too different, per se, is that you know while we do believe that, that the centrality of truth is God, uh, certainly God, God we consider to be that perfect one, the one who knows all, but as it pertains to Christians interacting together, none of us have an ultimate corner on truth. And so even to declare like that the church, um, let's say that as a sing, as a singular entity, what like for instance in in history, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, when it had you know the the greatest expansive uh, hold upon the bulk of Christendom, uh, that centralization of knowledge, if you will, and, and it's not even entirely proper to say that they they even had that uh, fully wrapped up in itself. but like that the more that we've had A breakup of the, of, of kind of the hierarchy within the the grander church, the more we've seen uh, peace and prosperity even uh, amongst other Christians and and even the, the, the breadth of theology that allows us to understand God in a variety of different ways and, uh, and help us to see the depth and beauty of who he is. Uh, So on some level, I'm dancing around the point here, I, I guess, but I, Really, what I'm trying to say is that you know centralization of power is almost is almost invariably a bad thing, even as it pertains to the the broader church uh, you know in general. So I think that there's there's something to that, and that's not to say that you know, oh, well, all denominations are are you know completely great, and there there's nothing wrong with any of them or something like that, but rather just to say that like, there's there is kind of distinct disadvantage. Um, in trying to even centralize all of what would be considered religious, uh, religious uh, influence in one location or in one entity.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. I, I definitely have covered that a lot, the centralization versus decentralization aspect and arguments against socialism as far as yeah, being able to determine the price value of things in a market yeah. when you don't have a market. That definitely is a problem. <laughs> Um, And I can see how if you have many different denominations within Christianity, how they do, uh, in a sense, keep each other in check. They expand the knowledge of theology and understanding of Scripture and God and all these types of things. And I can see how that is a good thing. Going back to the time period just prior to the Reformation, there was a very centralized structure in the church. And there was a movement towards reforming the church. That was the original plan was just to reform it, to change it, to uh, modify it, get it in line with the way it's supposed to be. And that ended up coming to a break in the church. And so I want to hear a little bit from you on um, when is it necessary to have an actual break versus just reform an institution? Because we see this with the church historically, and we see the same thing with the state today. You can look at something like secession movements of people that want to break apart some of the powers of the centralized federal government within the state and make them more regional or more local. And I think you would probably be in line with that, at least as a first step. And so um, when is it, Prudent to actually break versus reform oh, the institution. What a,
0: what a tough question. <laughs> you don't, you don't, <laughs> you don't pull back from the the the, the hard ones, do you? Okay. <laughs> I
1: try not to, and I, I know there is no set line yeah. that you can draw on the sand and this say, far, once you cross no this line, other, then you have yeah. to break now. But but yeah, just um,
0: man, it, yeah yeah. In a, in a so broad long view, as looks. you can. Like my my goal in any of this would be to to whether it's a you know if the break can be done peacefully, that's a great thing. It's a great thing when you can uh, recognize that you know we can part our ways at this point and end up with a better relationship than we had. What's very problematic at times is that often breaks end up be end up being the you know the ignition point of violent action. Um. And, you know, a good example of this is, you know, the, the Civil War. Uh, like, I, I'm, of, you know, I'm, I'm a complete convinced belief that there, the Civil War was unnecessary. You know, Britain was able to abolish slavery without firing a shot. And yet, we somehow deify on some level that the, the instance of the Civil War is the reason why we don't have slavery today like this is the only way it had to be this way well it didn't have to be this way uh, there are, are plenty of, of other ways that this that it could have turned out it didn't have to involve necessarily a complete break and an in, in igniting a war it could have been done so much better that being said there are other ways in which you know breaks uh, happen that don't require um the firing of a shot by any means a great example of this is just in the last, just literally in the last couple of weeks, we got to see uh, Britain exit the uh, the European Union once and for all. You know, goodness gracious, what a, what an amazing thing to watch! Uh, it, it's it's really quite an amazing thing. Brexit's been a, it's gonna, it's gonna pay off. It's and it's a good way of of showing how you can peacefully exit, like so, I think that's a that's a good thing. So. Again, I feel like I'm kind of dodging around the question, but I'm, I feel like breaks are, you know, as long as they can be accomplished peacefully and you realize that the, at the effect of the break will be one that will accomplish uh, a better relationship, that's a great thing. Uh, if, you, if you don't feel like that you can do that, that a break would, would not result in a better relationship, that it would result in violence as a result, maybe reform is the proper way of doing things. I can't answer for all history at all times, uh, but it seems like that my, if our goal is to try and improve our relationships together as, as a society, uh, that, that we should be seeking to resolve our issues without violence. If either one of the things uh, that we're attempting to do, reform or uh, a break, would result in violence, then we should probably consider the alternative option.
1: Well, that reminds me of a book that was actually referenced by the very first guest I had on, who was also a libertarian um, in season two, and that would be The Politics of Obedience. It was written by a French author in the 1500s sometime. Um, But one of his main arguments was that the reason that the state has this authority over a society, the reason that you can have a few hundred or a few thousand people rule over millions is because the millions give them that authority. And his argument is that there should be a peaceful revolution and that all you have to do is withdraw that authority and bam, you have this peaceful revolution, you have success and there is no violence. So um, I imagine you can get on board with that. Um, Oh yeah. But I do have- Well,
0: Debatee was right. I mean, yes. and, that, and that's what we're describing, is that if you can if you can have a break and not have violence, that's probably a good thing. Yeah,
1: yeah, and, and I would also totally agree. Um, however, the challenge there would—we can use this historical parallel for the challenge for a good example of it—would be that the Reformation started as a nonviolent movement, uh, mostly, where you had some— people within the Christian faith that believed differently than the current Catholic church. And there were some splits here and then there were more splits and more splits. And this mostly happened peacefully. And this was roughly, I know there are plenty of caveats here, but roughly this was a peaceful revolution within the religion, within Christianity. And you did have success in making this a more decentralized movement and a more decentralized institution, if you look at the church as a whole as being all the different denominations. And so on one hand, that was a good thing from at least the way we are describing here of having a break that is peaceful. But on the other hand, the problem is that oftentimes these peaceful breaks um, historically— end up getting co-opted by other forces that do not have the same ideology of a peaceful solution, and instead they enjoy the use of force to get their own uh, political will accomplished or to get more profits and wealth or whatever their goal is. And we saw that with the Reformation. You end up having these nobles and these different Uh, people that were involved in the power structure at the time politically, and they started using force to take over other surrounding territories. And the culmination of this would be the Thirty Years' War, one of the bloodiest times in European history, and the creation out of that of the nation-state, at least uh, mostly from a broad perspective here. And so that is my challenge, is that if we're looking at the modern state and using um, this same challenge for the modern state, I think you and I would probably both agree a peaceful break would be a good thing. That the more you can get political power to be more localized, more regional, that that is a good thing. You break away peacefully from the state in those ways. But I guess historically, that doesn't seem to be the way that it actually pans out. And so I wonder... What I'm thinking of right now is that earlier you had mentioned how centralization, um, having power centralized in one source is always going to be a bad thing just because of what typically happens when you do that. And I would agree, even though centralization should increase efficiency, increase effectiveness, it should be a great thing, but that's not reality. And so I guess if you compare that same challenge to uh, the opposite thing of breaking everything apart... Ideally, that should be great, and there are ways of doing that completely peacefully within a society. But realistically and historically, it seems that this is usually co-opted by the use of force by some other rival that wants to take more power. So, um, is that something that you would say is something that should be watched out for?
0: Well, I think there's some point. There's some clarification that could be made there. And, And for one thing, I think that it should be it should be pointed out that the centralization that's almost invariably the bad thing is the centralization of essentially what might be called decision-making authority, uh, that the more that that is centralized into one, into one body, to one entity, the, the worse off that, that people become because the, simply it's a socialism problem all over again. You can't be able to, the, the, the economy that will result is nonsensical because knowledge is distributed and that cannot be centralized. That's, that should be emph- that should be c- certainly emphasized as well. That knowledge cannot be completely centralized. Uh, the only one that knows all is God, and that's it. Uh, the state, which it might claim to have all the knowledge, but it doesn't. It can't. Uh, that's it is a fact of human existence that knowledge is distributed. So there, there's that. Um, the other piece, though, is that even as you, you mentioned that you know, as the church kind of broke up, if you will, and there were different for lack of a better word, we'll call factions, per se, or different belief sets or, or slightly different ways of wanting to interact. The more that that happened, the political portions of those, of those communities just wanted to use the religious trappings as part of the justification for what they wanted to do politically. So it wasn't necessarily that, that the breakup of the church itself uh, was the cause Uh, of the the political wars of those of those years it it was it was used however essentially as marketing collateral (laughs) it was how they pitched it to their followers their constituents to why they should go off and fight uh they so in other words they co like you you use the word co-opted that's what happened the co-opting of religion uh was was what happened there not uh necessarily the principles behind the religion itself because think about it. Really the, the, the wars the relig- the so-called religious wars of those years weren't really about religion because you can't make somebody believe something that's different from what that's already in their head. You, you can't make them do that. What they were declaring through their through their violent action was that they were they were deciding they wanted to decide who had the, uh, who had the right to use deadly force against each other who had the political uh, power in these scenarios, not, not the religious part, per se. It was only used essentially as marketing collateral to get what they wanted.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And so you would say that the peaceful break was accomplished and that that was done well, um, roughly. But that the co-opting of that is not necessarily something that was of this Reformation movement. It wasn't a part of their ideology. And so although it did happen, it was something that was outside of the movement. So you can't really judge whether the movement should or shouldn't have proceeded from the beginning, even if you know that that's a risk, because that's just something yeah. that's outside and secondary.
0: Yeah, because we're, otherwise we're arguing counterfactuals. Now I think there's a, there's a sense in which, and I, I think this is admissible and why we should, why I should mention it here, is that there is a sense in, a sense in which you know, the Catholic Church of the time period had a had a bit of a constraining force upon uh, various violent aspects of, of differing societies at the time. So some political entities were restrained through the church on some level. And and that's a good thing. I'm not I'm not denying that. I'm not denying that that's possible. But it, I don't think it's exactly correct to say, for instance, that well, once the the breakup of the Roman Catholic Church affairs, then everything just fell apart. Like I don't think that's that's quite correct either. Yeah. Um, yeah. I and think you, you kind of get where I'm going with that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you said that the church did restrain the use of force in some cases, and at yeah. the same time they also unleashed the use of force in many cases. So yeah. Yeah. There's both sides to that.
0: Yeah, there's both sides and I think the kind of the idea here is that, you know, it's it's hard to pin it down on just the one thing because of, uh, there's counterfactual scenarios that we could bring to bear to try and, you know, otherwise explain things. Okay, so
1: that was part one of Dr. Norman Horns interview with Our Foundations podcast
0: and if you tune in next week, you will hear the second part of the interview. Thanks for listening. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calledtofreedombook.com.